This is On Being's Unheard Cuts. I'm Krista Tippett. You're listening to my unedited conversation with Geshe Thupten Jinpa. He's the Dalai Lama's primary English translator, and he's president of the Institute of Tibetan Classics in Montreal, Canada. I spoke with him on October 18, 2010, at Emory University in Georgia. This interview is included in our show, Translating the Dalai Lama. View video footage of this conversation and download the MP3 of that produced show at onbeing.org. Too long. Um, yes. Yeah, I think I did. Yeah. yeah, even even just uh, not on silent, but off because text messages come in and and can. No, I've switched it off. It's it's off. Yeah, thank you. <clears throat> I think you must have an incredibly grueling schedule when you. Yeah, with him, when his solemnness, I mean, with yes. him, it's. Um, <laughs> It's the concentration that mm-hmm. takes up a fair bit of energy, <laughs> because you never know when it's going to yeah. switch into Tibetan or. <laughs> right. yeah. I was also at the um, the Vancouver event back oh, in okay. October. Quite a f- yeah, I don't few know if you met you, Ricard, there. D- no, yeah. just last year, though. Oh yeah, that's October. true. Last yes. year, yeah, 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 yeah. And uh, and so I watched all. I mean, one event after the other, one panel discussion <laughs> after the other. I was it was exhausting just to observe that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, we have a lot of. The people in common, and I've had quite a few people on the show who've been part of the Mind Life Dialogue. Oh, okay, okay. Um, Matthew and Arthur Zions, okay, John okay. Kabat Zinn, and okay, okay. Oh, uh, John Halifax. Yes, you yes, probably know. Yes, I don't I know. know her, yeah. And um, and also Penny George. Do you know Penny? Is one of the. She's a benefactor, I think, of the Mind Life yeah, Dialogue. My, yeah, she's one of yeah. our funders. Okay, so. okay. Um, do you have any questions of me about? Not really. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, other than to request you to simply call me Jimpa. That's my first name. All right. Um, um, I did know that everyone calls you Jimpa and Down. She's somebody uh, okay, who okay, told okay, me okay. when I was. Uh, <laughs> I saw her. I was speaking out in Sun Valley, and she okay, said, okay. You, "You must interview Jimpa. You must." <laughs> but yeah. I'd heard that from others as well. Yeah. yeah so we will hold <clears throat> this to an hour because sure. I know you're tired. Yeah. And Actually, I'm tired, too. Yeah, that would be helpful. <laughs> yeah. um, do we have the... Oh, here's the clock. Okay. Trent, how are we doing? We had the live stream up, and it just went down, of course, right before okay. you arrived. So, Trent, do you, should we just... Do you think you need a minute or two, or can we... Uh, you can go ahead. Okay. <coughs> um, <coughs> so... Um, I'll just say that the 
the way I conduct these conversations is to try to um, speak not just about religion or spirituality, sure. but about how these things infuse different lives. Sure. And <clears throat> also, I like to say that we walk the line between great religious ideas and real experience, theology and human life. Sure, and, sure. Uh, and that's our line of walk anyway. So <laughs> I would like to start. Um, just with the background of your life with your childhood, which is fairly dramatic. <laughs> um, and then I know that you were too young to remember that flight from Tibet that you went on sure. with your parents and following um, His Holiness. But I wonder if, if that, um, that exile, if you grew up with a sense from that experience um, of um, what Tibetan Buddhism meant or, or a sense of a special responsibility to this tradition because of that life experience? I think growing up as a kid, um, I mean, I don't, I, actually looking back, I don't think I can say exactly when this sense of responsibility kind of dawned on me. But, I mean, I remember, um, although I don't recall my experience from a very, very early age, but I do have one of the, Perhaps one of my earliest memories from my childhood was from this boarding school, which was uh, in Simla in North mm-hmm. India. Uh, it was actually, it turned out later, I found out, it was being administered and run by Save the Children's Fund, oh. which is a British charity. And it was a Tibetan children's? Was uh, it, it, was, it was established, it was specifically set up for Tibetan children mm-hmm. as a Tibetan children's village. But it was a smallish school, um, and uh, later on, I found out it was, you know, because there were few non-Tibetan and non-Indian kind of, you know, teachers there. Um, one of my earliest memories is really the visit of His Holiness hmm. uh, to this school. And um, I remember this very vividly because a whole host of uh, Indian uh, security officials came, police men, a couple of hours earlier. Uh, it could have been day earlier. And I remember playing marbles with them. That I remember very, very clearly. <laughs> right. um, another thing that I remember very clearly is, uh, you know, how it was a big deal for the mm-hmm. school, you know. And um, and fortunately, a boy and a girl was chosen to offer him traditional Tibetan mm. white scarf. And I happened to be chosen the, as the boy. I don't know why, but... Uh, so I remember that very vividly. and And I also remember, you know, after His Holiness had this ceremony and we were walking, you know, from one place to another, you know, across the um, kind of, you know, the entrance um, outside. Um, I remember actually walking, holding his hand. I mean, I don't remember what I asked him, but um, so these are the very early mm. memories I have. Mm. And, and I mean, one thing looking back, uh, although, you know, from one point of view, I mean, from a conventional kind of point of view, it was not an ideal childhood, you know. Mm. I was at boarding school at the age of four and a half, separated from my parents, and so one could say it was not an ideal childhood. But on the other hand, my memories of my early childhoods are, on the whole, very, very positive. I remember being kind of well cared for. I remember this having this wonderful, warm sense of community. And the teachers, we had particularly two monks who were part of the staff, and they were just absolutely gorgeous. I remember, you know, the warmth and even their faces looked kind of radiant, you know, to, right. to a kid's eye. So these are the kind of mem- very, very early memories I have. I wonder what <clears throat> what place um, His Holiness had 
in your imagination, even from that young age. You know, um, looking in from the outside, he he is such a complex... There are all these aspects to what he represents and who sure. he is, right? Sure. On the one hand, he's a national figure sure. of the Tibetan people. Sure. Um, on the other hand, uh, he is a reincarnated lama. Sure. On sure. the other hand, he is, uh, as he likes to say, a simple Buddhist monk. Sure. Did you think of him as human, divine? I mean, can you put that into words? Because I, I don't think, think there's an equivalent in Yeah, I think it's very difficult um, to really kind of fully articulate the complexity um, of, you know, a Tibetan, a t- kind of, mm-hmm. you know, someone like myself. Um, even after all these years of working for him so closely to really describe the full range of the complexity of, you know, my relationship with him and my perception of him. Uh, even at a very, very early age, um, there was, I remember very, very clearly that there was on my part a tremendous kind of, you know, a sense of connection with him. I mean, I don't know why. Maybe, you know, as a kid, I saw him as a father figure or, you know, and, and partly, you know, he's got this wonderful smile mm-hmm. and which probably for a young kid is, is very comforting. Uh, growing up later as a monk in a monastic university, then, of course, I had the opportunity to appreciate the more kind of, you know, sophisticated aspects of his personality as someone who has gone through the classical Buddhist education, someone who is a deep thinker, as, you know, erudite in the, you know, the most subtle aspects of technical Buddhist philosophy and textual mm-hmm. scholarship and all of this. Then later, um, as I began to work for him, you know, then, of, of course, I was able to, you know, of course, you know, as Tibetans, we there is a kind of a mythic dimension to our relation to His Holiness because right. he's not just an individual person. You know, he kind of represents a whole institution right. of the Dalai Lama. And in a sense, we, you know, at some subconscious level in the person of the Dalai Lama, we kind of bring together all the inherited wisdoms of the successive Dalai Lamas. And, and so there is that mythic aspects of, you know, at least, you know, my my perception of him, um, which brings a certain richness. And then later, of course, you know, I had the opportunity and honor to be able to serve him, you know, much more closely as his personal translator. And then, of course, you know, what particularly um, impressed me most is the extent to which you know, he goes to really care for the world. You know, I mean, he is truly there as, as you know, you, you read about the descriptions of the Bodhisattva in the, in the scriptures, mm. but it's very rare you see one. Mm. But when you see someone like him whose entire being is dedicated to the welfare of other sentient beings and who does it day in and day out, and uh, so that that was for me very 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 inspiring actually. I mean, much more so than his sophisticated, refined hmm. philosophy. And you weren't actually trained as a translator, right? I mean, there no, was something not, yeah. it yeah. looks kind of accidental sure, about how sure. you became a translator. Sure. Tell me that story. Um, well, actually, uh, that this was in 1985. Um, I was a young monk. Uh, a typical young monk student in one of the large monastic universities, and these tend to be in the southern Indian state of Karnataka, where there are very large Tibetan settlements, uh, and 
most of the monastic institutions, which were academic centers of learning in in Tibet in the past, were re-established in these South Indian monas- South Indian settlements. So I was a student in one of those monasteries, actually called Ganden, and um, I happened to go to Dharamsala uh, because my brothers and brother and my actually my brother and sister were studying there at that time. And then it so happened that um, His Holiness was scheduled to give a series of teachings and the official translator who was supposed to be interpreting for these teachings were not in residence. But, uh, and the teaching was organized by a, a Buddhist group from Los Angeles. So they were looking for someone to stand in for this interpreter for, on the first day. So one thing led to another. The word spread around that there is this young monk who speaks good English. And mm-hmm. You've been to Cambridge so, by that time. No, no, I oh, haven't. Yeah, right. I haven't, yeah. yeah. Um, so, and then I I was approached and I said, look, you know, I haven't done any translation professionally. I don't think I can do it and I'm too terrified. And <laughs> so one thing led to another. I was, I ended up doing it, but it was fortunately a simultaneous translation through the FM radio. So it's less, un, you know, it's less kind of ner- um, unnerving because mm. you can be anonymous. Um so fortunately, the text he was teaching was something that I was quite familiar with. Um, and then the next day, the interpreter turned up, but and then his holiness saw, and he said, well, there are two of you, why don't you switch? So we started switching, and then the request came from the Western students who were there saying, you know, it's very confusing to switch between two styles, can the first translator do it? Mm-hmm. So I told my colleague, I said, look, why don't I do the first three days and, and when the next part of the teaching begins, you take over. So anyway, I ended up doing the whole thing. But during that time, um, on the third day, the secretary called me up and he said, his holiness is curious about you. You know, he wants to see you. And so he asked me some background. And then he, so the next day there was, a, you know, I had a meeting with the audience with His Holiness. And His Holiness looked at me and said, I know you. You are a good scholar. You're a good debater. But he said, I never associated your face with someone who spoke English. <laughs> and he was kind of slightly intrigued. He said, How come I didn't know about you? Mm. you know? So, uh, and then he said, uh, People tell me that you have a very accessible style of speaking. And um, would you be willing to? you know, come with me, you know, every now and then if I need some translation services. Of course, I cried there. You know, I, I said, you know, never even in my dream I ever thought that I'd be mm. able to serve you in such capacity. I said, of course. So that was in 1985, and then I started basically traveling. That is kind of yeah. a lovely circle, though, when I, yeah. you talk about him visiting the monastery, right? And you yes. Yeah. Head, and then those years later, you end up... <laughs> um, you know, I would like to talk to you, I mean, just even with this image you just gave of debating in monasteries, and yeah. you, didn't you enter a monastery at the age of 11, is that right? Yes. Yeah. And you are a scholar, and, and went, no, you were in a ritual monastery, and later a yes, scholastic monastery. Yes, I went monastery. to a scholastic monastery. Yeah. And um, that's a whole layer of Tibetan Buddhism that is unknown in the West, and also that can't, there's no space for that to find expression in the sure. Dalai Lama's public appearances. Sure. So I would like to draw you out a little bit on that. Um, I mean, I think even uh, there's a lot of interest, fascination about the mind-life dialogues and the scientific research sure. um, on the brains of meditators. Sure. And But even what comes across about that is just such a small slice. And I know you've written about this, too. Um, and uh, so 
you know, as you say, that His Holiness belongs to this, and you belong to this vast, ancient, rich, in part very esoteric metaphysical world. And I wonder if we could just, if you would take us just a little way inside that, a little farther inside. I mean, just for starters, for example. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, we don't have to go too far. But for example, I mean, you've pointed out that meditation is an English word. And that that the word meditation, that, that everyone knows now, in fact, doesn't carry sure. all of the nuance. So, sure. so talk about just just linguistically, you know, how you would start opening that up a little bit to the complexity you know. Um, I mean, like, in, in some ways, um, when you see terms like meditation become popularized, it sort of becomes a victim of its own success. Mm-hmm. The fact that it gets to be popularized means it has become mainstream, but on the other side, you have to pay a price for this. Mm-hmm. So going mainstream involves some process of kind of reduction where it sort of somehow ends up in this lowest denomination. So in the popular image, people tend to immediately think of meditation as someone sitting quietly, emptying the mind. Mm-hmm. And uh, I mean, I once remember actually seeing a, a comic strip um, and in one frame of the you know drawing, there was a a person sitting down and meditating and in the other frame a friend comes by and he says what are you doing and in the, he says I'm meditating and in the third frame and the guy who says what does it do and the response is it empties your mind you know you empties your mind your thoughts and then in the final frame he says well I thought your mind was pretty empty of thought to begin with. <laughs> right. so, yeah. so there's that kind of connotation. But if you look at the, the original Sanskrit term, bhavana, and the Tibetan term, gom, from which this term meditation has, has been kind of being used now as, mm-hmm. a, as a translation, bhavana and, um, and Tibetan term gom, I mean, bhavana has the connotation of cultivation. It's like cultivating a field. So there is this Mm -hmm. connotation of cultivation. And the Tibetan term gom has the connotation of familiarity, a process of familiarity. So the idea is a kind of a... It it points to some kind of reflective exercise that involves an element of repetitive process, Mm -hmm. but in a disciplined manner, in in a focused way. So, uh, and, and, and meditation can be, you know, as His Holiness often points out, analytic, where it's not simply sitting down and quieting your mind, but it can actually be a process where you use kind of discernment and move from stages and stages to kind of, in some sense, uncovering layers and layers. So there's to get to a, a knowledge point. that's being Yes, acquired. exactly. Uh, so it's kind of uh, an analytic process, but also meditation can be, you know, simply stilling the mind. So basically, um, there tend to be two main styles of meditation. One is more of a kind of a, uh, a focused, single-pointed, stilling the mind, where the effect is more of reaching to a calm state. Mm-hmm. Then you have the other style of meditation, which is more aimed at kind of penetrating deeper and deeper into, you know, understanding the interconnections and implications and so on. Mm -hmm. So, of course, when we use in the popular 
English context, we use the word meditation. All of these nuances get left out, but it's probably part of the process. And at some point, the nuances will come back because in the in the end, um, you know, I, I I agree with the famous Wittgenstein dictum that you know the meaning of a word is its use. Mm. So the meanings acquire, you know, comes to acquire through usage. Mm-hmm. Um. So, I mean, the the notion of emptiness. I mean, you've you've written about. Uh, I mean, well, let, tell me about the the knowledge that comes through meditation. What what? Well, it's not simply. Uh, I mean, the the, the Tibetan tradition you know, is is a very complex tradition, mm-hmm. and in some sense, you know, one of the main things that people have to bear in mind is that when people are kind of encountering a tradition such as Tibetan Buddhism. Um, it's very different historically from, say, any of the monotheistic traditions that you see. Um, in the West, particularly in the West, through history, through a, pro- a process has taken place where there has been a kind of a gradual separation from between spirituality or religion um, or soteriology, which is a system of thought that has some notion of salvation right. uh, on the one hand, and philosophy, which has more to do with kind of understanding concepts and their interrelations, and kind of, and then you have science, which has uh, mm-hmm. even further kind of you know now confining more and more to a, a worldview where uh, your understanding of the world is based on what you can. Directly, directly perceive, or what you can infer on the basis of what that what direct experience can show us. Mm-hmm. So this kind of separation between science and philosophy and spirituality has not occurred in the context of Tibetan tradition, mm-hmm. Tibetan Buddhism. So Tibetan Buddhism is kind of an entire worldview. Now, because of that, you know, you cannot look at Tibetan Buddhism and say this is religion. You can. At this, you know, for the same reason, you cannot say this is philosophy, mm-hmm. or nor can you say this is science. Of course, certainly not. Mm-hmm. But within that tradition, you have all the elements. So a monk's training involve kind of incorporating all of this, integrating all of this, and and because unlike say secular forms of humanism or you know kind of secular philosophy, um, in even in the context of Buddhist philosophy, because it was never divorced from soteriology, philosophy is never done for its own sake. Right. And, right. Philosophy is done for the sake of something else. Mm-hmm. So philosophy, you know, philosophical inquiry is driven by some kind of understanding of, you know, kind of ethical motivation and aimed at some kind of spiritual goal of you know, enlightenment mm-hmm. or whatever you may want to call it, perfection. So, so that makes the training of a monk very, very sophisticated because you have to, you know, kind of study all these aspects. So that's why, uh, say, for example, uh, uh, scholastic monastic education include uh, a very rigorous uh, course in what from an average you know, kind of educated person point of view are very esoteric mm-hmm. you know, questions of philosophy, you know, epistemology. 
the relationship between our perception and the world, and uh, um, the d- distinction between true knowledge and a mere belief and assumption. Mm. Um, you know, how does a language and thought relate to the actual reality? Is uh, the you know is the relationship between our terms and the object they refer to kind of a referential? Or whether they mean, you know, the relationship is, you know, emerges in the context of a much more complex relationship of some kind of coherent theory of truth. I mean, these are right. very, very esoteric <laughs> you know, <laughs> questions. But the monks who go through scholastic training, you know, through debate, through dialectics, you know, look at all of this. And 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 then the basic standpoint is fairly kind of one could say Socratic. Mm-hmm. The idea that in the end, it is knowledge that liberates. Mm-hmm. So in that sense, Buddhism is, you know, the basic motto is very similar to the Socratic principle, knowledge right. liberates. This is a very old idea, not just in the East, but also mm-hmm. in the West. But there is that link that you're right, has been severed, decoupled in the West between knowledge and goodness. Sure. Or knowledge, yes. I would let's just leave it at that. Knowledge sure. and goodness. Yeah. I think that's one way that the that I mean, Holiness talks about it. Exactly. And that is, although, um, as we've been saying, what people may learn of Buddhism or initially know about it is perhaps a simplified idea about meditation. I also think it is that connection, that reconnection between knowledge and goodness that sure. that is magnetic to sure. people. Sure, sure, sure. You've also said that. Um, the Tibetan tradition then provides a novel response to this to this ancient Greek question of why knowledge doesn't translate into action. I mean, and you've all, and what you just said leads us helps explain that that in fact that th- things are never separated to begin with. Sure, partly that, but also partly in, in the Eastern tradition. It's not just Tibetan tradition, but also uh, Indian tradition, in, classical Indian tradition in in general. Um, there was always the role for meditation. And meditation can be seen as a kind of the link Mm -hmm. between kind of intellectual conscious knowledge and its translation into behavior. And the transitional link is provided by what could be called bhavana or cultivation or meditation. So the idea is you can begin with knowledge, but knowledge needs to be totally integrated into the being into the very personality of the person so that what comes out in the in response to a given situation would be something that is ethical truly ethical and the right thing to do but in order for that knowledge to have that kind of expression that knowledge needs to be i mean to use a modern computer language needs to be completely processed mm. so and that process processing of that is the is what allows integration of that knowledge into your being so that it becomes almost like a second nature. I mean, you know, learning how to drive is a very, very good example. I mean, I can say this because I started, I, you know, I started driving quite late, you know, um, because in India I never learned how to drive. And so, and, you know, at the beginning it is, it is tough. You have to remember everything. You have to remember to look in the mirror. You have to remember, but after a while it just becomes a second nature to you. Mm-hmm. You know, you can drive effortlessly, you know, you can talk. I mean, of course, you shouldn't be speaking on the phone or watching something, but at least right. you can have a decent conversation with someone and, and you, you know, it becomes effortless. And mm-hmm. that's the kind of idea that knowledge at the initial stage needs to be 
acquired through conscious deliberation. Mm-hmm. But that knowledge acquiring once isn't enough to change you. But in order to have a behavioral effect, the change at the level of behavior, that knowledge needs to be somehow integrated. And that integration can achieve can be achieved through a process which we will call cultivation or meditation. I mean, I, I think of meditation as, as a spiritual technology. It's interesting yes, that you yeah. use that computer yeah. term. Uh, and prayer also, I think, can be yes, a spiritual yes. technology. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Actually, my colleague, uh, Professor Robert Thurman, um, from Columbia University, he uses the term technology. Does yeah. he? Yeah. Um, I wonder, in, in your... As someone who entered a monastery at a young age and lived in this tradition for many, many years, has lived, you've lived in this tradition all your life, and you were a monk for many years. Um, is there a moment that you can recall where, where you were aware of that transition from working at it to the effortlessness? <laughs> uh, I think it's, I mean, this process, uh, one needs to go through in relation to a lot of things. So mm-hmm. I think, I don't think you can achieve this in relation to one and then somehow you can kind of generalize it in all the domains. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I mean, there I was talking more in relation to a particular form of knowledge. Right. Um, but one incident it really is the debating uh, skill uh, and it is it is a dialectic process initially it's a very conscious deliberate process where you have to learn all the moves and this is within the monastery I mean, the debates yeah, mm-hmm. monastery and it's the primary medium of study actually because it's i mean looking back from cambridge when i went to study there finally, you know, then looking back from my experience as a Cambridge student to my monastic years, I mean, one day I was kind of laughing because in the Western context, when you was, you know, I, I did my course in philosophy at Cambridge, mm-hmm. you know, silence is what you expect. You're in the library, nobody's talking. Even if someone whispers, <laughs> right. someone says, quiet, quiet. So this is the main medium in the West is through reading and, and kind of, you know, studying in that manner. But in the Tibetan tradition, although reading is important, but the primary medium um, is really debate. In the debating courtyards are, of course, the loudest place. <laughs> now, there are literally right. hundreds of students, one, you know, and each, you know, the whole group divided into a, a pair, one sitting down who's defending a thesis or responding, and the one standing up who's questioning and attacking the position and every time a point is made by the questioner he claps his hands and you know st- you know stamps his left foot and it's very loud and it's actually quite a boisterous gesture as well so you could see the contrast mm-hmm. and and there is an understanding in the tibetan tradition that much of the insights um, needs to arise in the dialogical context it's 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 a kind of a different way of looking at no, in a kind of birth of knowledge. And I think that's very different from what most people would imagine when you say the word monastery. Yes, even yeah. more than library, that's sure. where people would imagine sure, silence. Sure, sure. So mm-hmm. I mean, there is so in fact there is a saying that uh, the students should honor their you know classmates as much as they honor their teacher, mm-hmm. because just as the teacher was giving the lecture. It's important for your knowledge. So are your colleagues with whom you debate. So you may have a whole group of students who 
you know, each of them don't fully know. But in the course of, I mean, this is a bit like today we call it brainstorming. Yes, it I is. mean, it's a bit like brainstorming. Yes, yes, yes. But in a much more, so there, the debating art itself, um, fortunately, I was able to master it very fast, but it tends to take fairly long. But once you, and the mastery of that skill uh, um, then makes everything much easier because then, you know, in the, in the in the course of debating, you no longer rely on the formula that you have learned, but you're able to now kind of there's an element of spontaneity that arises, mm-hmm. so that you know you can get yourself onto a mental plane where even though there are many other classmates shouting and and and, but you can maintain your total focus, and because you're at this kind of very high plane of mental state, mm-hmm. kind of, you know, there's a certain swiftness that arises in the context of engaging, you know, back and forth. It is also a nimbleness of mind yeah. that as yeah, you say, comes a with exercise. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so just give me an example of what a topic might be. Uh, well, we begin, any, I mean, I the, the, the monk students start with the very mundane topics of, you know, kind of... Uh, um, Say, for example, um, the relationship between the concept of color and a white color. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so anything that is a white color is necessarily, uh, you know, subsumed by col- the concept of color. But there are colors which are not white, and there are things which are neither of the two. Then you can take another example of relationship between, say, um, uh, a Tibetan and a monk. So then, then it gets a bit more complicated. So there are, there are people who are both Tibetan mm-hmm. and a monk, but then there are Tibetans who are not, a monk, not monks, then there are monks who are not Tibetans, and then there are people who are neither of the two. So then you can see, so you start building these kind of uh, relationships. So, it's, it's, so this is taught very early to kids to really mm-hmm. start learning to play with concepts and their relationships. Um, and and in this way you you train um, so. And again, that that is all about the totality of yeah. human experience, bringing yeah. together these spheres that are somewhat separate in sure. the West of sure. scientific knowledge, philosophical knowledge, moral sure. training. So you know, one thing that this helps me understand actually is, um, as I said, uh, as I as I as I as I remarked before the. The, His Holiness the Dalai Lama's public teachings are very simple, yes, uh, by of necessity, and yet he carries this weight and authority that transcends the words. Sure, and um, and so what what this helps me understand, and it, I was I was realizing this as I was reading you also in preparation for this, is the that the experience of of him is not just. Um, of the stripped-down teachings, but of the fruit of the teachings, yes, right? Yes, of yeah. of the cultivation, sure, sure. Of this, of this very complex sure, tradition, sure, yeah. And I mean, in his case, um, I mean, one of the things about a very compelling thing about him is that when he talks about you know issues like compassion and sense of caring for others and recognition of the oneness of human family, mm-hmm. you know, there's a kind of a, a um, note of conviction that comes through 
partly through his body language. Yes. And that's why it's, it's, it's very powerful. It's almost be, tangible. Yeah, exactly. As it's much almost as kind it's of visceral. And, and the fact that he embodies these is what makes the interaction with him, even in these large public events, very, mm-hmm. very powerful. Mm-hmm. Because you can, you can see the, the conviction with which he says it. And, uh, of course, partly because he wants to really reach everybody, there's a kind of a deliberate simplification of the message. But partly it's also because he insists on communicating directly mm-hmm. with the audience mm-hmm. that, you know, he relies on his own command of English. I mean, his vocabulary is very rich, but then the, the, his ability to carry on with complex sentences mm-hmm. becomes more challenging. So he, But at the same time, he likes to engage with people just directly, you know, especially in the public, large public events, yes. public talks. Um, so it comes out sometimes, uh, if you listen to him for the first time, somewhat simplistic. Um, but on the other hand, if you, if you dwell on what he's trying to say carefully, they're actually quite profound. For example, his argument that, you know, the basic human nature is more inclined towards goodness and compassion and you know he builds this up by giving all sorts of arguments folks one of which is the fact that when we were born affection was the most dominant force mm-hmm. without which we couldn't survive and the fact that we have the ability to appreciate others affection which which means we must have some capacity to show it to others um, and then, so the and also then, you know, citing from scientific research, making the connection with our evolutionary kind of ancestors, uh, with the animal world. Um, so the you know the kind of biological nature of our be our being. So if you if you kind of sit down and think through, I mean, when you sit there and listen to him, it, it all seems very, you know, kind of. Uh, common sense. But on the other hand, I would argue that it's the commonsensical nature of his general talk that is most profound because in a sense he's he's making us think and not take for granted these things. For example, like one of the kind of memorable things he has said is that the fact that you know the, the the kind of actions of affection, actions of love and care, caring, do not make headlines. Is mm-hmm. because we take them for granted, right? Right. Which suggests that we expect people as normal to, as normal to mm-hmm. behave in that manner. Mm-hmm. The fact that killing and violence makes headlines is because mm-hmm. we don't expect normally people mm-hmm. to behave in that manner. Yes, and but when our- they do. We are shocked. We and become very confused. By exactly. And, and he is suggesting that by not being critically reflective, we sometimes let ourselves driven by headline news. Mm-hmm. And the, the sad cash kind of, you know, byproduct of that is that people become cynical, thinking that, oh, we're such a horrible species. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Whereas he says, he's saying that this is the opposite. The fact that they are sensational, that they are news-making, means that somehow, in, one, in some way, we don't expect fellow human beings to behave in those manners. Mm-hmm. So these kind of things are very powerful, actually. I mean, it's, we, you know, he's questioning 
many of our everyday assumptions. And he's saying, no, don't take them for granted. Mm-hmm. You've um, been involved in, in different ways in the mind-life dialogues, I believe, which are these this extended dialogue that His Holiness has hosted between scientists and spiritual thinkers. Um, And I think that, uh, I mean, on this program, certainly we've drawn out some of the the scientific learnings from that. Sure. And and also spoken with people who have a scientific as well as a spiritual perspective like Arthur Zions and John Kabat-Zinn. But, I mean, I'd like to know, you've been involved in those as well, and you know what they've shown about how meditation does affect the brain. And, I mean, this, these, the research that's come out of that has really changed neuroscience, which is very, sure. very uh, full of impact. But how have those uh, conversations and the learnings through them af- affected you? Have they um, opened your mind up to knowing or thinking about things that you hadn't considered before? Well, it's difficult to say. Um, I mean, I... I I had been fortunately um, fortunate to be part of the Mind and Life Dialogues uh, right from the beginning when it began. Um, I mean, one thing it 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 has changed my mind is probably perhaps the way um, as a Buddhist scholar um, today I look at many of the mental processes. Mm. Um, before I encountered kind of mind and life dialogues um, and had the chance to kind of, you know, be part of this ongoing long dialogue, my entire training is in um, Buddhist philosophy. And even in the West, when I went to Cambridge, I did philosophy. So I was much more comfortable, um, you know, thinking about these processes and phenomena purely at the philosophical level. Uh, of course, as a Buddhist philosopher, we do acknowledge that there are behavioral expressions of your you know, mental states, mm-hmm. but the brain was never really part of that there is picture. Mind, was yeah. There's a mind, yes. and then there mm-hmm. is your behavior. Okay. And as a result of you know being part of you know in these dialogues, I've come to appreciate how. The Western neuroscientific understanding of the brain's role in mental experience is fairly advanced, hmm. and uh, I've come to now, um, you know, accept that um, no discourse on mental phenomena that doesn't take into account the brain's role is going to be complete and comprehensive. Mm-hmm. So, in that sense. You know, although I may not buy into completely the scientific agenda and the underlying assumption that that in the end all mental processes are reducible to biology, biology, mm-hmm. and you know, brain biological or biochemistry mm-hmm. um, or whatever it is, basically a physical uh, processes. Um, which I know is a major assumption um, underlying neuroscience and much of Western life sciences um, in, in general. Um, you know, one could argue that this is a regulative principle with which they operate. Um, you know, I, as a Buddhist thinker, I, I, I'm not convinced. Um, mm-hmm. My own feeling is that the problem of consciousness is going to remain 
uh, a philosopher called it the very hard problem. And I think, at least for the foreseeable future, it is going to remain a very hard problem. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't quite see how, in the end, consciousness can be ultimately reduced to brain processes. Now, having said that, you know, I do agree, um, and here His Holiness too, uh, you know, agrees that um, many of our conscious mental processes, those can be understood and explained in terms of brain processes. Um, right. So that it could be, you know, both Buddhists and neuroscientists could make great strides by collaborating in researches that would look at specific aspects of the mental phenomena, whether it is attention, whether it is compassion, empathy, uh, memory, mindfulness, uh, you know, um, basic awareness. I think a lot of these, um, in in many of these very specific mental phenomena, I'm sure uh, neuroscience will have a lot to say. They will make a huge amount of progress. uh, and, And Buddhists, too, can learn a lot. But there's also still a distinction, or uh, you can ask the question in two ways, right? Whether there is a physical correlate to mental processes, or even to what we call consciousness. Yes. Or whether they arise physically, whether they sure. are purely physical sure. phenomena. Sure. So, uh, you know, this is something I, I would have asked His Holiness the Dalai Lama, but would never have a chance to, and certainly not in this interfaith dialogue we were in yesterday. But, I mean, because of your belief in reincarnation, I mean, that sheds a whole new light on the matter of consciousness, right? Sure, because sure. presumably he is a, well, you, you say this, but it, there's a body, but there's something complete, in fact, sure. as you understand it, that sure. completely transcends the body and moves from one body to another. Yes. Do you think, yeah. do you, is that a discussion um, in Tibetan uh, circles? Well, not in the mind and life circles. Because no, but his in uh, response to the yeah. mind and life circles within Tibetan Yes, tradition? of course, of uh-huh. course, of course. Um, I think um, I mean the, the the one of the I and mean, this is probably potentially an area where science and Buddhism may have uh, kind of an important divergence. Mm-hmm. Um, Buddhist for Buddhism, it's very important to at least acknowledge the possibility of consciousness that is, although on the manifest level of experience may be contingent upon the physical basis, which is the brain, Mm -hmm. but at some ultimate level, there is a a kind of an aspect of that, our experience of consciousness that is independent. Um, So, and, and for example, the way in which Buddhist philosophy understands the the relation the kind of the, dif- the distinction between a process that is material and a process that is psychological or mental is that mental phenomena are thought to be you know characterized by subjectivity subjective experience mm-hmm. that's you know whereas the physical phenomena is characterized by some kind of extension in space measurability and uh, quanti- quantifiability as science would Right. Uh, suggest, whereas mental phenomena, are, you know, are in some sense they are, you know, their primary characteristic is this 
mere subjectivity of experience. And actually, one Western philosopher has, you know, coined this very famous term: "What it feels like to be a bat." I mean, I even wrote a wrote a paper which was very influential. And the term is used among the Western philosophical circles called qualia. Qualia is that subjective experience of what it means to be conscious. Mm-hmm. Now, Buddhists would argue that is the you know kind of the the defining ingredient ingredient of mental phenomena, which is what makes mental experience completely different from physical matter and processes, mm-hmm. and that, in the end. Cannot be explained purely in terms of material processes. Now I know that scientists, some scientists, you know, try to account for this through quite a complex theory of what they call emergent emergence. So how, and this is the idea that from more from simpler structures emerge more complex, you know, right. systems, and right. from complex systems emerge even more complex systems. And a lot of the scientists would argue that consciousness is, in the end, some kind of emergent property that arises from these kind of biological yeah, origins. Yeah. So I mean, here I think Buddhism probably would have uh, uh, divergence, but I mean, it, but it also diverges in the sense that um, you're taking subjectivity as seriously as physicality, yeah, right, and sure. saying that. Um, in, I mean, fact, it's as in fact, primary it is as, real and solid as, as what primary, can be measured. It's as primary as material phenomena. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's the argument. Mm-hmm. And and as far as the current science is concerned, I mean, the jury's, you know, out. Because at this point, um, there's even conceptually, you know, I mean, let alone, I mean, um, there being an actual description, but even... I mean, even conceptually, there is just simply no kind of... You cannot even imagine how can you give a physical account of a phenomena whose primary characteristics is this subjectivity. Mm-hmm. So the science, in order to really account for this, will have to go through radical, radical transformation. Mm-hmm. And, and so it probably will also need to include much greater... Um, kind of, you know, uh, and and probably quite some aspects of the method, methodology needs to be, for example, some people are arguing that science needs to bring back the role of first-person introspection. Mm-hmm. You know, psychology tried that at the turn of the 20th century and then dumped it, and then behaviorism took over, and mm-hmm. behaviorism became the dominant approach to psychology, but now people are beginning to argue, partly because of the, the the emerging field of, you know, meditation science. People are beginning to argue that maybe we need to take a second look at the role of introspection, the first-person account, mm-hmm. in you know, in understanding consciousness and mental processes. So unless you know, at the moment, the the scientific method methodology is completely dominated by someone looking from outside. It's a third-person objective perspective. Right. You know, someone's looking from outside. And so in that kind of description, you know, no matter how detailed description you may give of the brain processes, mm-hmm. what's happening in this part of the brain, that part of the brain gets activated, these chemical processes are becoming active, and this is being fired, and there are this electrical pulse, or, 
In the end, none of these equate to the actual felt experience of that consciousness. Mm-hmm. Right, and meditation and all and the complex layers of introspection is a is a first person exploration yeah, exactly. of the nature exactly. of the mind. Exactly. And when you say consciousness, um, I mean, let's say again, if in t- in terms of the idea of reincarnation, I mean, it's it's more than awareness. It's also aspects of memory, right? I mean, what yes. do you think of what is what is involved in human consciousness when you use that word? I think uh, at the fundamental level, uh, consciousness. Um, I mean, maybe the term consciousness, uh, even in the English usage, uh, there's a certain ambiguity. Sometimes Mm -hmm. uh, we refer to consciousness in the sense of being Mm self-conscious. So sometimes people would argue that animals like rats are not not conscious because they have no self-consciousness. But sometimes consciousness... I'm not sure how we know that. Yeah, exactly. But (laughs) sometimes um, people tend to use consciousness in a much more general sense as a way of contrasting contrasting uh, consciousness from inanimate material object. Right. So, so therefore, the ambiguity sentient. of the term, yeah, mm-hmm. sentient ambiguity of the term exists in English um, as as well as in 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 the Tibetan equivalent. But to to kind of to put it very crudely, um, uh, by consciousness um, in in the Buddhist philosophy, we mean uh, this primary phenomenon. Um, which give rise to all the more evolved conscious sensory and thought processes. So every instance of mental experience has consciousness as part of it. So consciousness can be seen as a kind of a primary awareness, Mm. which is a kind of a basic property of a sentient being. Um, So... Now, many of the more conscious part of that experience of mental life, say a specific memory Mm -hmm. of a place or a person or um, a very kind of, you know, technical knowledge of certain things, these are very contingent upon experience Mm -hmm. of what you have. Which may be rooted in a body, right? Uh Um, But the underlying that all of this mental experience is to use kind of you know William James terminology a stream of consciousness there is this kind of continuity mm-hmm. underlying all of this and it is this stream that buddhist would argue gets kind of you know carried over from life after life and when it passes on it it goes on in a very very rudimentary basic level but at the same time, it has all the capacity of expressing itself, you know, mm-hmm. into a more evolved form of consciousness. Mm-hmm. So just because you have experienced something in this life doesn't mean that you're going to be able to remember everything mm-hmm. in the next life. But there might be some imprint of that. Sure, mm-hmm. sure. Well, that's. I feel like I could talk about this for hours, but we, <laughs> I promise to get you out of here in 10 minutes. I, I want to come back to... Um, to uh, this very very human uh, encounter that that I have with you, this experience that many people have of you when they um, experience His Holiness the Dalai Lama, 
as his translator. But I have to say, having observed that a few times in a few different places, um, it, it feels much more like a an intimate conversation that's happening between the two of you. Uh, I've, heard, I've even heard people describe it like a marriage, that you're completing his thought before he <laughs> finishes his sentence. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, it's more than just you in, interpreting words. Um, and and, and it, it, feels, uh, it feels like a, a friendship as well. Sure. And, uh, you know, just going back to the story you told me about the awe you had for him, which I think that also comes through too, that sure, you, sure. a great reverence sure. comes through. But that, what, what is that like then to develop that relationship with this person? Uh, um, <laughs> I think when I'm actually uh, on stage um, assisting him um, as his interpreter, um, I actually kind of lose a sense of the sense of time um you know i um i mean fortunately because i've served in this capacity for now over 25 years um and also having worked so closely with him um and in many instances um it's not so much that he needs interpretation but it's basically you know he's thinking about something and he starts a conversation and my role is to simply follow through the you know kind of follow that through chain that of thought, thought to the end yes and then when he is struggling for a word simply to suggest so that it doesn't his struggle for the word doesn't stop his flow of thought and that has been primarily the kind of the role that I in, in generally in the public events but I mean more technical nature say like at science conference then mm-hmm. it'll be, there will be a lot more interpretation but um, I mean in my case um, in often because I've done this for so many years um, I'll be hearing something that he had already said before but mm-hmm. every time he says it he says it in a completely different way it's very fresh and the fact that you know he truly lives it um, makes a huge difference, mm-hmm. and um, and the sheer joy of his personality. I mean, that right. person that makes the experience very, very. I mean, for the, me, I mean, mm-hmm. I'm almost in a meditative state when I, mm-hmm. you know, when I'm assist, translating for him. But it, it's a joyful meditative oh, state definitely. in which there's laughter as yeah, well. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I suppose perhaps I was fortunate enough to establish this close working relationship in with him when I was in my monastic years and perhaps there was a, a sense of collegiality um, of kind of camaraderie you know mm-hmm. as, as mm-hmm. you know uh, kind of fellow monastic members and in fact when I finally left the order and and met him as a lay person the first thing he said to me was um, of course, as a senior member of the monastic community, you know you have to understand that I was very saddened to lose someone like you. And then he said, uh, but at the same time, I've, I know you well, and I know you have thought about this question very seriously, and you haven't taken this decision lightly. Mm. So he said, you know, I trust your judgment. Mm. 
So that's the person he is, and he's. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's interesting. What is interesting about his holiness is that what are you know opposing characteristics in normal human beings? You tend to see them, you know, converging in him mm-hmm. because normally, when you see among religious people, people who are pious, people who are very very devoted and self disciplined. They tend to be also quite intolerant of others who don't, re- you know, meet up to their standards. Mm-hmm. And I, I saw that particularly with His Holiness um, that this was completely lacking. You know, mm-hmm. when I was a monk, uh, I was never really pious. That was never my cup of tea. Um, I was <laughs> studious. I was, you know, curious, uh, but pi- piety was never really my cup of tea. So and he, his holiness gets up at three thirty in the morning. You know, I I even have difficulty getting up at five thirty or six. Um, so for a monk, that is fairly late. And uh, but I never felt being judged by him. Mm-hmm. You know, even when I was a monk, that somehow I wasn't living up to the standards that the monk was expected to be. You know. Right. And so this is amazing thing about it. And another thing is that normally when you see people who are who have tremendous self confidence, then humility is not really part of their characteristic. You know, there's with a powerful self confidence comes a certain sense of pride and and arrogance. Again, in his holiness, mm-hmm. his arrogance is completely missing. He's at a personal level very humble, but at the same time tremendous self confidence. Mm-hmm. Yes. So this is a, an interesting juxtaposition of what generally can be contrasting kind of, you know, characteristics. And, and, and so these kind of things, and one of the things that amazes me is that he has this gift to be fully present, you know, when he's talking to someone. And it doesn't really matter whether the person in the room that he's talking to is the president of the country or whether it is just an ordinary person. He, the way in which he treats has just none of these mundane considerations you know, have mm. any role. And that is an amazing mm. you know, kind of quality because it's, it's very, very difficult. Another thing is that in him... You know, people who, you know, I mean, you, you know that Tibetans particularly, you know, adore him, right. worship him, you know, one could argue. But none of this goes to his head. He remains humble mm-hmm. at a personal level. So these are what makes it amazing for me to have this opportunity to work for him. You know, mm-hmm. after all these years, you know, you know, my affection for him, my admiration, my respect, mm-hmm. even my sense of awe remains undiminished. Can I ask you one more question? But I think we need to change tapes, right? I forgot. I forgot. uh, I was supposed to give them uh, just one more question. I'm really... Do you have more work tonight? Uh, Not really. Okay, good. Um, Uh, This is really wonderful. (laughs) Yeah, I really completely forgot until just then because they have one hour on these tapes. Okay, good. Okay. I'm glad to do that. You tell me when.
Okay. So you uh, are married now, right? When yes, you left yeah. the monastic order. So how long have you been married? And uh, 14 years now. And you yeah. have two children? Two is children. That right? yeah. mm-hmm. So I heard this. Um, where did we read this? Anyway, in the, in the, when we were researching <laughs> you, <laughs> um, we found a, a question and answer with His Holiness, and someone asked him about anxiety and stress. And he said, well, even monks and nuns are caught in anxieties, and my advice is to live simply. And he said, my translator, Geshe Thupten Jinpa, can answer that question better. He was a monk. Now he's a father. <laughs> as a monk, he slept peacefully. Now as a father, his child wakes him up when, he, when he's asleep. <laughs> I, 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 I do wonder how... Um, well, one thing that occurs to me is that maybe as a parent, you also have a different insight into the longings and the stresses that people bring. Uh, sure. When they hear his teachings, sure, and that this life—I mean, even I know—I read about that he gets up at three thirty and meditates for hours before sure. every day. That I have children too. Sure. That feels like a dream. How has that uh, changed you, formed you, made you a different Tibetan Buddhist and a different uh, colleague to His Holiness? Um, I, I think you are right. I mean, I um, one thing that surprised me a bit uh, was actually uh, how challenging relationships can be actually. <laughs> um, you know although in as a monk you know we live in a community there are relationships but relationships are more that of teacher teacher to student and f- to fellow monks as you know colleagues and you know then we have within the monastic community the setup is we have smaller families within mm. which we mm. live together but none of the you know the challenges that we have you know in 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 any given social context where there are more than two or three people there's always going to be some challenges in the context of relationships because that's you know what we are we're human beings mm-hmm. but I, what surprised me a little bit was how actually tougher it was uh, to have a marriage partner mm-hmm. and and to live in a truly you know sharing life that was tougher um, uh, but on the other hand, I uh, truly uh, um, feel grateful that I went through the monastic life um, because the discipline it taught me um, and also, um, and it may sound strange, but a certain degree of emotional independence I found tremendously helpful. Uh, as a married man. As a married man. Mm-hmm. So that you don't dump all of your baggage on your spouse. Mm-hmm. And somehow when your spouse is annoyed or angry, that somehow to be able to relate to that in a more compassionate manner so that you don't take it personally. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, and and also it has partly to do with the, the kind of compassion training that we go through in the monasteries that His Holiness was talking about today. This, um, you know, putting yourself in other people's shoes and trying to, you know, kind of enhance one's empathy. Mm-hmm. So these kind of things, um, you know, I could. The best way I could describe this is a some degree of emotional independence, mm-hmm. so that you don't. It's you know your relationship is not completely, you know, this kind of uh, needy and and this clingy and 
grasping. Mm-hmm. Um, so that I, I, I was very happy to see that, you know, that my monastic years really helped. Mm-hmm. And also this basic discipline um, that I, as a monk, that I was able to bring into my um, life that was... But at the same time, um, what was very, very valuable as a layperson is the sheer joy and also the headaches that comes with, with being a parent, you know. Mm-hmm. And, and, and His Holiness, of course, when he talks about cultivation of compassion, he says that um, because of the biological factor, you know, women are, you know, in some sense have greater propensity and greater sensitivity to others' pain. Therefore, you know, they can probably, there needs to be more women leaders, women in the public role, particularly in the leadership role. And uh, so, you know, something similar to this is what I experienced as a father, that there is a certain visceral feeling of love and compassion to your children that as monks probably it will take ages to cultivate. Mm -hmm. Um, That, you know, as parents you know, these comes very naturally. And, and, and you can see that especially when the children are young, I mean, as they get, now my two girls are kind of teenage and preteen, so mm-hmm. it gets more complicated. But especially when they're very young, you know, their needs are very real and their needs are very urgent. Yes. And their needs are for now, you know. And, and so one thing I noticed is that in the parental love, the quality of unconditionality is very powerful. Mm-hmm. Whereas as a monk, you don't have that opportunity, to, except towards your teacher. But then it, there is a kind of a hierarchy. You know, it's 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 to someone who's is an object of reverence. Right. So this really gives you uh, an experience of an expression of these things you were learning in the monastery. Oh, definitely, especially the unconditionality mm-hmm. of you know this is truly selfless nature mm-hmm. of the parental love to your child, and this is powerful. Mm-hmm. Um, what what comes to mind as the most um, unexpected and formative experiences you've had as as translator? This is my last question. Uh, um, I always hate being asked that question about the best, the most interesting. Um, but what? Well, that's one thing that I do um, kind of you know cherish uh, deeply about. The experience of translating for him is the the quality of the joyful state of mind I can automatically get into mm. when I'm there. Mm. But when I try to cultivate that kind of state of mind in my own quiet sitting meditation, it's tougher. So probably it has a lot to do with the ambiance, the fact of being next to him, the sheer the kind of presence of his kind of being and his compassionate energy, whatever it may be, but there is a kind of a, 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 a state of mind that I get into, you know, quite naturally. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is, of course, a tremendous source of energy and, and, and you know, enthusiasm. And also it's, it's, a, it's a constant reminder to me that, you know, ordinary people can strive to that kind of state of mind. So that probably for me I find most transformative um, part of my work for him. But also the other part that I truly value is the opportunity to assist him very, very closely 
on some of the books that have had huge impact on the wider world. For example, his book, Ethics for the New Millennium, yes. which is an attempt to articulate and envision what a secular approach to ethics would look like. That is an approach that is respectful to all the perspectives of the multiplicity of religions, but at the same time, you know, it's it does not require subscribed into any particular religious belief or faith. And that was done out of a, a, a sheer compassion by His Holiness for the world with um, you know, concern that somehow we need to promote the culture of compassion. So I had the kind of, you know, a great opportunity to work with him closely on that. Another book that I assisted him was the book that told his story of many mm. years of engagement with science, scientists, universe in a single atom, where, you know, he, you know, for me, the most compelling part of that book, in addition to personal stories, is the overarching theme, kind of theme, which is the need for taking compassion to be central in human motivation and not forgetting that science is one among many human activities that are ultimately aimed at betterment of humanity. Mm -hmm. Somehow that ethical consideration that underlied, you know, the, the whole scientific revolution in the early days must not be forgotten. Mm. And how the scientist, particularly as you know, in, in the field of biogenetics, they are now creating new realities which human beings never confronted in the past, which has huge implications for the survival of the species in the world. Like, kind of, you know, as a whole, his appeal to the scientist to not to take these lightly, take the ethical responsibility of what they are doing seriously. I think for me, and then just recently I finished, um, he finished a book that I assisted him on, which tells his story of more than 50 years of engagement with you know, other religious traditions, oh. and it's uh, you know, uh, towards a true kinship of faiths, how the world's religions can come together. And again here, one of the powerful chapters in that book is the argument that despite all the diversity in the doctrinal beliefs and the metaphysical you know, idea theories underpinning those doctrinal beliefs, when it comes to the prescription of how to lead a good life, an ethical life, there is a tremendous convergence across all the major traditions. And these traditions were divided across time across geography, across culture, across language. And all of these prescriptions, in the end, comes down to compassion. Mm. Compassion is the foundation of you know, moral teachings for all the old religions. And I think this is a powerful message that people in the religious world, as well as the secularist, need to heed. Because if, if, it is, if this is true, and if we can convince ourselves that this is the foundation of all of our value system and compassionate nature is a key aspect of, our, of who we are, then we 
we will tell ourselves a different story. Mm. And if we tell ourselves a different story of who we are, then the chances are that we're going to try to act in accordance with that story. So, and I think these I feel, I feel tremendously privileged because as an ordinary person, I will never have a chance to have that kind of outreach to the world. But by serving him mm. you know, in the, for these books, I really have an opportunity to at least contribute to this process. So these are what I find you know, deeply transform, transformative. Yeah. Well, but thank you so much. Thank you. Yeah. It's a joy. Yeah. Oh, this was great. Thank you. <laughs> yeah.